Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Healthy Perspectives podcast. Thanks for joining us for today's journey, and I hope you enjoy. Hello, hello, hello. All right, thank you for joining me. Uh, I have been away from the office for, oh, I don't know, probably five or six days. And uh, had a chance to do a little reset, and it, it was good. Um, and during that time, I was just bombarded with things I wanted to to get out here on my podcast. So I'm really glad to be back today. I'm going to start with with this particular uh, topic. Um, it was there was a CNN. Uh, article that was brought to my attention. So for all those of you out there, uh, thank you so much for listening and giving me feedback and pointing me in the direction of certain things, because it does allow me to focus some of my time and energy. Uh, Matter of fact, I'm going to have another one this week uh, that does similar. I got some feedback from somebody about something and and I'm going to go ahead and elaborate on it. Um, But in this one, this CNN article uh, got me to thinking, I'm going to start with some of the questions that came to my mind right off the bat. Number one, why is mental health in political crosshairs? Um, it's, you know, it, it's not, it's not easy for me to watch as my profession gets uh, misrepresented. Um, it's tough when it's represented correctly because it, what we do is hard work. It's, it's challenging stuff. And so I know people don't necessarily want to understand all the ins and outs of what it means to be, uh, you know, a a social science guy, somebody who who takes an individual and says, let's let's just get to know each other and let's let's figure out what's going on in your world and how we can uh, maybe correct some things that you've got some bad habits around or, um, you know, in some cases, in some more extreme cases, how do we manage the disorder that is interfering with so many areas of your life. And so I understand that people don't necessarily want to dig into that. It's, it's hard. It's hard to understand what mental health is really all about. And yet what I'm seeing put out there in the media is, is so narrowly focused. It's, it's agenda-driven, frankly. And, and that is what's driving me crazy because the, the psychology profession, the um, sociology profession c- cannot be sucked into this agenda-driven uh, world. It's, it, it, we have to do something different, in my opinion. And so I began to ask myself, am I the outlier? Am I the one who is, who is so focused on trying to do what is right psychologically, sociologically, and culturally that I have become the outlier, the one who is on the outside and therefore need to pay attention because I might lose my entire herd? Um, and in, in this particular article, uh, you know, there's, it, it's a forensic psychologist and professor and so, you know, as I was reading it and, and analyzing myself more than anything, um, the, the questions did come up about, um, you know, why is this narrative about mental health being, being sent out the way in which it is? I have to ask myself, I'm not a conspiracy guy. Like, first of all, like, let me just be really clear. I do believe 
In confirmation bias as being a natural human trait, we do tend to confirm our own bias. So to ask the question, am I the outlier, is my way of saying, I'm going to set the example and help people see that we can ask the question, not of other people, but of ourselves. Um, the question being posed essentially in this article is basically, is mental health not part of mass shootings or is it part of mass shootings? And the way that they worded it is, can mass murderers be stopped? So I guess where I'm coming from is uh, one of the things that came to my mind is, do people understand what altruism is? Because altruism is the thing that balances. Look, first of all, altruism is 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 very um, very challenging to understand, even for mental health professionals, where we study this stuff and we research this stuff for a living. It's very tough to understand because we always want to understand the why or the how. Like, what is what are the variables that go into altruism? Is it sudden or is it developed over time? And stuff like that. And so that was another question that started coming to my mind. So these are things that hopefully by the time I'm done with this podcast, I will have elaborated enough to create curiosity. That's my goal. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to solve this problem for you. If you're seeing the same issues as me, great. If you're seeing it different than me, great. What I want you to do is be curious about what comes up and ask more questions. Because through that curiosity, I think we're actually going to be much better off. It's a way of making common sense more common. When we ask the right questions, we can gain understanding. So the question was, can mass murderers be stopped? So in his question, well, first of all, let me paint you a picture of Reed Malloy, um, who is a forensic psychologist and professor. He is, has been studying what they call mass murders um, since the 80s. He has focused on terrorists. He's focused on you know, mass shootings. Um, you know, it, it has morphed over the years, which is often the case as we learn and we grow and we study. So that part doesn't bother me whatsoever. I actually think that's a good thing. Um, but the, the article itself, in quotes here it is, dismisses the common talking point. That's what Reed does. He dismisses the common talking point, often touted by the NRA and its allies, that mass shootings are caused by individuals with mental disorders. So right there, we know the slant. The slant is mental health does not necessarily cause um, you know, mass shooters. Uh, I don't know if <laughs> this is why I had those questions at the beginning right? Is really, is mental health really not part of mass shootings? Uh, you, look, to me, it seems like common sense. If we are of right mind, we don't look to murder people. Like that's not our intent. That's not what we want to do. So there has to be more to the story. Uh, unless I'm the outlier and really people, they, I mean, the first thing that comes to their mind is, Hey, go, let's shoot. A, let's go shoot a bunch of people. Like that'd be great. That'll be a way of making my point. I don't think that's our, our, our first go-to. Um, you know, you, you look at the common things across every culture. When you look at murder, when you look at a smile, cross cultures, doesn't matter. They're considered to be 
the, the those commonalities that transcend space and time. They just, you know, when somebody smiles, uh, that has a meaning to it. When somebody, uh, you know, murders, I mean, that means there's some illness there, uh, frankly. All right. Um, he goes on, talks about the pathway to violence. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to highlight the the pattern or the pathway to violence that, that they uh, discuss in this article. Number one, there's a grievance. I'm going to get into details as we go, but not right now. Number two is violent ideation. Number three, research. Number four, plan and prep. To me, that seems very similar, but we're going to go with it. Number five is probe and breach. Um, that's essentially saying test security. And number six is the attack. And so when we go back and we look at this, um, he also does provide some interventions. And he talks about three things, um, which I'll get to those in just a minute. The pathway to violence, number one being a grievance. Something has hurt the individual very personally. It affects their daily activity. They then look to blame and they fixate. I can find you a, at least a dozen diagnoses about blaming and fixation. Um, obviously, by themselves, not sufficient. But when we add homicidal ideation, when we add, uh, you know, the impacts that fixation has on multiple areas of their life, whether that be schoolwork, um, whether that be friend relationships, family relationships, when we start to see the impacts that the fixation and the blaming has on different areas in their life, I can guarantee we can get to a mental health disorder. That being said, they weren't diagnosed before the mass shooting, therefore, According to this article, they didn't have a mental illness, at least 50% of the time. Um, the, the violent ideation, uh, uh, violence is not a, uh, a first go-to. Violence is taught. Violence is taught. Typically, it starts at the family level because we are family-centric at the beginning of our lives. Whether we have a family of origin or we're adopted or whatever, family orientation is first. So there's family orientation, and then in later adolescence, early teen years, we we get into uh, you know friend um, eccentric. So we become uh, more dependent on our 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 interactions with peers. So peers are driving our our influence more, and then in a healthy individual, you begin to see the the mixture of family and peer orientations. So you start to see uh, the kid wants to bring home their friends, the friends want to interact with the family, and moving into early adulthood, you start to see a better balance of friends and family. And then the next phase would be they would start their own family, typically. So I'm giving you, like, obviously, I know this is not everybody's life story, but these are typical developmental processes. And the research is pretty clear. You can go do your own on this. It's not, it doesn't take a lot to figure this out. So early adulthood, you know, there's there's this development of an intimate relationship that's going to hopefully become a lifelong relationship. At least that's the hope for most people, right? Obviously, you get people who are hurt along the way and they decide, I don't really want a relationship. Or you get people who are, are work-centric and they become focused on work and they're like, oh, well, the family will just have to wait and maybe or maybe not ever get to it. Um, but then 
they start their own family and we become family centric again. So we sandwich the peer centric with more family centric. And then, you know, as we, as we grow and develop, you know, there's other influences like, you know, our work, our politics, our uh, economics, our, you know, and, and the different aspects of our life. So seems pretty simple to me, but violent ideation is taught typically early in life. Not always, but you start to see altruism, which I noted earlier as one of my questions, or violence typically before they're in their teens. And you know, those those slants tend to last. Now, they are not 100% due to how you're raised, for sure. But they are also not 100% biological. Nurture nature, the whole debate and discussion about nurture and nature. But violent ideation is typically identified pretty early. Who has the tendency toward violence? We can usually see it pretty early. Um, in the pathway to violence, the third one was research. Um, and then the fourth one was planning and preparations. So, you know, I like the idea of research and planning preparation in, in terms of understanding the pathway to violence because it is so common. It's not an arbitrary act when we look at mass shootings, which we know. And he identified that, which was good. Then he talks about probing and breaching, which is testing security. Um, well, at that point, so here's, here's the thing between research and probing and breaching. Normally, somewhere in three, four, and five, there's what they call leakage. Uh, he, he talks about this a very small amount, but he does talk about it. And that, that leakage is where a person gives hints to the people around them. They want, they're kind of testing, am I on the right track or am I not on the right track? They really want this to be something that's accepted. Well, then what's happening is they're going to the echo chamber. They are going to social media at this point, and they're sort of testing the waters out there. And they get 100, 1,000, 10,000 people who are like, yeah, oh my gosh, you were so wronged. Going back to the grievance, that affirms their blaming and their fixation, and we have the cycle. Now, I agree, we cannot take away social media. And we don't necessarily want to limit in a in a country in the, in the US where freedom of speech is a big deal we don't want to limit their uh, you know their speech there okay so let's say we didn't limit their speech and everything the leakage for most of them when they get to the probing and breaching the leakage is not just on social media typically it's usually a third party a friend a family member somebody who really understands their grievance and unfortunately often neglects to act on it because they don't believe it, right? And they're like, no, my son, my daughter, my friend, they would never act out in that particular way. There's just no way. And so then they're marginalized even more. They're, they, they are telling people, I'm being neglected. I'm being neglected. I'm being neglected. Somebody pay attention to me. I'm being neglected. And they're not taken seriously. That may be the last straw that pushes them over the edge into the attack. The attack is you know, then really brutal and people are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I missed the signs. We're not paying attention, unfortunately. Okay, so then the question became interventions. First of all, I loved the layout of this article. I loved that they were looking at these things. 
and I'll, I'll get into some of the, the parts where I, I, I believe our profession was totally misrepresented. But if you look at the layout of this, this is a pretty good layout. I'm, I'm digging the layout itself. They get into interventions. Here's where we want to see what, okay, what are the solutions? This is fantastic. Thank you. Somebody finally looking at solutions. And he points to three things. Motivation. Making the means of violence more difficult. In other words, in this particular article, he goes into all about gun laws, which, I mean, is super narrow, but okay, whatever. Like, he at least is looking at the making the means of violence more difficult. And then the third one, uh, limiting opportunity. So, with these three things in mind, this is, this is a, a beautiful setup for a great article. Like, it's a beautiful setup. And then... He drops the ball. The setup is fantastic. And then all of a sudden, I mean, it's like, you know, it's like the Hail Mary and the guy ends up all by himself at the five yard line. Nobody's around him. Nobody within 20 yards. And he gets so excited. He just doesn't catch the ball. Like he literally could just, he could bobble the ball into the end zone 10 times and still have enough time to pull it in. But no, he fumbles it. Doesn't even get it to the end zone. Doesn't even catch it at the five. Well, that's a bummer. That's a serious bummer. And I think it's a serious letdown for the profession because at this point, it becomes all 100% about an agenda. The agenda goes purely into... Guns and vaccines. Uh, vaccines came out of nowhere, first of all. So it's like all of a sudden, you know, you're we're playing football and the Hail Mary comes in and all of a sudden the football turns into a baseball. I mean, talk about screwed up. Like, wow, we missed that one. Probably should go back and take a look and see the setup. So I'm going to rewind. I'm going to go over the six pathway to violence pieces again, and I'm going to tell you what he said about them, but I'm going to do it a little different. I'm going to, at each step, tell you what could be done about it so that you actually have solutions. Okay, the first one, grievance. If that person is grieving, that person is hurt. If a person is hurt, they need love and attention. So what does he do about it? He does absolutely nothing. He talks about how they're blaming and then he moves into the, their fixation, which is a skip right over the top of grievance. When people are grieving, they need love and attention. You don't have to agree with them to give them a hug. You don't have to agree with them to walk with them through the park. You don't have to agree with them to catch the bus and say, you know what? Today can be different. You can do this. I'm your supporter. You don't have to agree with them to love them. Okay. So you could pay attention to the grievance and say, you know, I, I may not agree with you, but I do understand how much this stuff hurts. It's called empathy. This stuff hurts because I've been hurt before. And how many people have had grievances and did not go out and do a mass shooting? Um, all of them? I mean... You have, I have, everyone I've ever interacted with have had grievances at different points in different times in their life. 
So it doesn't equate to you you know you have a grievance and therefore you blame fixate and you shoot people. It doesn't work like that. Normally when we have agreements, we have somebody who wraps us in love. And when they wrap us in love, the grievance may still be there, but the fixation, uh, the blaming can subside over time. Because in all reality, most situations that we are in are at least partly our responsibility. Not always. There are times where we are just truly victims, but those are outliers. So when we have love around us, we can identify, wait a minute, that was an outlier situation. All right. The second one he said in his pathway to violence, violent ideation. This is where the fixation really takes hold. When somebody begins to fixate, so what does he say about their fixation? Um, Nothing. He jumps right into people fixate, take away guns or at least make a list of everybody who has them and make it harder for people to get them and so on and so on. But what does he say truly about violent ideation? He doesn't say, take it seriously, which is the number one thing in mental health. Take fixation of violent ideation seriously. And let me give you the the best example I can. There are very few things in this world that a therapist is going to breach confidentiality for. Very few. What we will breach confidentiality for is murderous thoughts, so homicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts, which is they want to die themselves, and that's different than sometimes not wanting to be where we are. Right. Sometimes we'd want to not exist, but there's a big difference between that and wanting to kill ourselves. And then anybody who is going to harm somebody else, if we know of it, we are supposed to report it because we are mandatory reporters. So there's very few things. But guess what's on the list? Violent ideation where people might die. Why? Because we have a responsibility to take it seriously. What if we find out later on that they weren't serious? Um, would you want to err on the side of, I'm going to take you seriously. You say you want to kill somebody. So we're going to, we're going to work through this, but we're going to do this a little bit different. It's going to be more intensive. You're going to be coming to therapy five times a week. And we are going to put a warning out so that, um, you know, the people who you claim to want to harm will know that they need to watch out and be careful for the next little while. Okay. The third one, violent as I was, um, research. Research is where leakage is not taken seriously. People in the process of doing research, and this is more complicated now than it's ever been because we can research on computers and phones and stuff like that. We don't necessarily have to go to the library and have somebody who knows that, oh, wow, they're looking up a lot about murders and death. And no, we can do it in the privacy of our phone and our our computers. And, you know, I mean, and a lot of people have, you know, VPN protectors where we, you know, like nobody knows what we're looking at. And, you know, obviously that's, you know, part of the problem, um, but it's also part of the solution. I mean, do we really want people to know what we're looking at? No. Okay. We want privacy, but what then will we be, how will we be able to catch the leakage? Well, truthfully, it's the people closest to the person. 
So when we see somebody who is isolating more and more and more, we should probably, I don't know, check in with them, give them a note that says, hey, I love you and I'm thinking about you. You know, give me a call when you get a chance. Something like that. I mean, truth is, when they get to the research part of it, they're already past the fixation, according to his own research. And if they're past the fixation, you know, it's starting to grow more obvious that this person is either going to isolate or they're going to find their allies, right? Like a terrorist would. Then they plan and prep. Usually at this stage, there is stuff that is visible, visible to somebody who is close to them. Give you an example. You walk into their apartment or their house, and you know you're like, "Hey, uh, I see a bunch of papers around your computer. What you what you looking up there?" Oh, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. That looks like a bunch of research or a big project. Well, you know, and what are they likely to do at this point? They're likely to probe and find out where you stand on the issue. So pay attention to what their next discussion points are. They're normally not going to totally avoid it. This is what his own research is saying. So when they're in that planning and prepping phase, if people are in and out of their life and they are not isolated, then we could potentially identify them sooner, like before they act. And then the probe and breach happens. And he says his solution to this is law enforcement may need to be intervening at this point. Okay, well, I mean, that's good. But what about all of the stuff before that? Because remember, he didn't address the grievance. He didn't address the violent ideation other than saying, essentially, they begin to fixate. Um, He didn't address the research, although he did talk about leakage, which is somewhere in that research, planning, prepping, and probing phase. But now all of a sudden, he's like, law enforcement, somebody needs to come in and rescue the day, save the day, because now we're all unsafe. Well, we wouldn't be if we would pay attention at one, two, and then three as well, right? We wouldn't be unsafe because when people have grievances, they just need to vent. They need to get it out. They don't necessarily need us to agree with them. Please keep that in mind. We don't need to agree with them. What we need is to hear and be heard, right? That is how we release a lot of things. Well, that, and for some people, they have to do it physically. They go to the weight room and it releases some of that fixation, right? And they go to play a game, a sport or something, or they go hiking or like there is a physical aspect to it because if we, if we don't physically release that tension, then it does also add to problems. So keep that in mind also. And then he goes on to number six and the attack. And he says, nothing. The article is silent to the attack. Well, let's be real. We just had a bunch of violent actions over the last couple of years. What we know is once we see the violence, it can be escalated or de-escalated. Well, in therapy, we see that all the time. I mean, I I have somebody who comes in and they're all worked up and they are, you know, they're borderline acting out. And my first, my first thing that I do is I don't match their energy. 
I actually, when, when things around me get chaotic as a therapist, my system goes into, okay, if everything around me is chaotic, what we need in this Petri dish, this social experiment is some calmness to see what that does to the people around me. And as I bring the calm into the chaos, what ends up happening is the chaos becomes more calm. It does it always settle down to nothing? No. And when you end up with really large groups, is it harder? Is it going to require more people to bring the calm? Yes. But the calm is what mellows the chaos. That's what leads us into good conversation, into good growth opportunity. When we bring chaos into chaos, we have more chaos. So we bring the calm into the chaos. That's psychologically what happens. So when the attack is going on and people are standing around doing nothing, that's a problem because the chaos is going on. What we need to do is insert the calm into the chaos. That would be somebody who is well-trained, who has the ability to calmly assess, diagnose, and treat. That's what we do in mental health. But in the law enforcement world, it's assess, diagnose, go, okay, this is what's happening, and treat, which is we need to act fast. Fast is the order of the day. Because we know that the chaos will only get calm once we calm the chaos. So it's a little bit more um, aggressive for sure, but it's a way of let's stop the situation right where it is. And then we can have a whole bunch of people with calm come in, which is often medical folks. So there are solutions when we have the attack. And that is we have to have people who are trained to assess, diagnose, and treat the act that's going on. So an example of that might be, um, you know, and I know there's different viewpoints on this, but, you know, maybe having, uh, you know, know, people who are in the school, teachers, uh, counselors, administrators, who know how to act in in the moment of crisis. That, That could be having law enforcement in the school who know how to act in the crisis, to stop the crisis moment, and then allow more people with more calm to come in and start the healing process. Okay. I went through all six. I gave you actual solutions. Please give me feedback. I want them. Um, I'm going to move into what he said about interventions, and then we'll go ahead and wrap up for the day. Uh, what he said about the inter- interventions. Number one, he said, change the motivation. I'm reminding you. Number two, make means more difficult. And number three, limit opportunity. So what did he say about changing motivation? He said, this is this is the most ridiculous statement I think he made. Uh, and, and mostly I didn't think, you know, I, I didn't think he was totally ridiculous until he became agenda driven instead of, uh, you know, staying too true to the psychology of it. Uh, Changing motivation, what he said was, we'll never know if it works. And I think that's a load of garbage. We know when it works. I know on occasion. Now, I may not know every time that it works, but on occasion, I do know when I have connected with somebody in such a way that their whole future has shifted 
because they began to respect and appreciate themselves and the people around them in a different and a more healthy way. I can see that not every time, but most of the time. So when we say we'll never know if it works, we may never know it prevented a mass shooting. But we do know that it has turned our world in a better direction. So to say otherwise, I think is foolish. Um, What do I say about changing motivation? I, I think the way to change motivation is really this. You get to know the individual. When a person is known, their motivations then become noticeable. When their their blind spots disappear and our influence on them can be positive or negative if we're a terrible person. But if we are a good person that's dealing with somebody who's borderline becoming a, a problem for our, our, our country, our, our, our state, our, our city, or, or wherever they are, their school, if we're with one of those people, we can become the positive influence. Like There have been noted mass shootings where people were not shot. Why? In those situations, the only reasonable explanation is the shooter saw them and said, I appreciated them for some reason and bypassed them. We've seen that happen. We know that that can happen. Is it going to happen in everyone? No. But can it happen? Yes. And does it happen? Sometimes, yes. And so what that says is that person wanted a relationship Because when it saw one that was kind to it, it didn't shoot them. They didn't shoot them. Okay. So motivation does matter. And changing motivation is a worthy endeavor. By changing motivation, it doesn't mean I'm going to tell you my way is the right way. It means I'm going to share you with you, sorry, share with you my perspective. And I'm going to listen to your perspective. I may or may not adopt what you believe or think depends on if it fits my morality. But if I'm solid in my morality, what you say cannot take me off of my morality. It can only reaffirm my morality. Okay. Number two, make the means more difficult. And this is where this article got 100% focused on guns. That's what he said. Guns, guns, guns. We've got to, re- we've got to regulate guns, which... I think is totally naive. Look, I, I, I haven't told you if I'm pro-gun or against gun. Um, I am former military. I'm pro-gun. That being said, I don't want guns in the hands of people who are not safe with them. Right? If, if they're walking around with a fully loaded gun and the, their finger on the trigger and the, the weapon's not on safety, that's a person with a problem. That person needs to be taught. That being said... What about all the other means of violence? What did he say about that? Nothing. He said nothing about that. He said zero about other means. Well, okay. So hypothetically, we take away every gun. What is a person who's still grieving and blaming, violent ideation comes in and they fixate, they research, they plan and prep. What are they putting in place of the gun? They're going to put something in place of the gun. This is a person who is not well. This is a person who is not healthy. They do not have healthy relationships or the right kind of relationships. Like something is going on with this person that is not well. And they will find another means. I'll paint it for you another way. If I lived 
out off of the grid in the mountains and I had a rifle and I had it loaded and not on safety and I set it on my porch and I am the only one, only person within uh, 50 miles. Does an animal come along and pick up that gun and take it into town and shoot somebody? No. Why? Well, because they don't have fingers, duh. No, it's also because the gun is not violent to them. If they knock it over and it goes off, is the animal going to stick around or are they going to take, take off and run away? They're going to run away. Why? Because they don't like that sound. Humans are probably not a lot different. Like We don't want to be around guns and violence in, in a place where people are going to get hurt. And yet, that's what's happening. The guns are the people problem. People problem. People have problems and they go to guns. People are the problem. Okay, so that same gun, I go into a neighborhood. I set it on the porch. It's loaded. A kid comes along and is playing with it. Is that a problem? What kind of problem is that? Is is that a gun problem? No, that's a people problem. You're in a neighborhood. You shouldn't leave a fully loaded gun sitting on your porch. At that point, you're an idiot. You are an irresponsible gun owner. So how do we regulate gun ownership? It's about teaching about what they are possibly as another means. That's another means. Not just regulate the guns themselves and take them out of the hands. I, you know, I do like the idea of a waiting period for some people to get guns. I have no problem with that. Do I like that they're, you know, they're collecting a list of everybody who has every gun? No, I don't really like that because, you know, that's in the founding of our country, guns were necessary in preventing, um, you know, the, the wolves from attacking our cattle. It was preventing uh, our neighbor from taking our, our, our cattle. You know, they were there for a reason and they're still there for a reason because if things got really, really bad, which I hope they never do. But if they did, it's nice to be able to protect my family, right? And sometimes that protection of my family would come because somebody would break into my house, let's say. That's a problem. I want to be able to protect my family. All right. So is there other, are are there other means of violence? Yes. I mean, at what point, you know, a hammer is violent, a screwdriver can be violent, an ice pick can be violent, uh, you know, a car can be violent. We saw that just last year, uh, a guy, which I, I know there was a bunch of stuff on it out there. A guy ran into a crowd of people driving a vehicle. I mean, he had a car, so he used it to enact his his violent tendencies. The third thing, limit opportunity. What does he in this article say about limiting opportunity? He says nothing. He thinks that the guns are the only way to limit opportunity. But the main way to limit opportunity, in my opinion, from from a psychological side, is catch it early. When somebody is isolated, we catch them early. We love them early not late. We don't agree with them early necessarily, but we love them early. When we love them early, that limits opportunity. Why? Because when a person feels like they're part of, they don't want to go outside of and become an outlier to the whole group. And if the group is saying, hey, we got you. 
you're, you're one of us. You're, you're going to be okay. We'll, we'll walk with you through this. Yes, this sucks. This is terrible. And we got you. We got you. You're one of us. When the group says that and they are nonviolent, we're fine. That person will not just tend toward violence anymore because they're part of something. Okay. That brings me back to full circle. Am I the outlier? When I go full circle, I ask myself, am I the outlier? No, I'm not the outlier. Am I solution oriented? To a degree, yes. Is that my main you know, theoretical approach in counseling? Not necessarily. Um, but it, it is something that I do pay attention to. I want I want to be a little bit solution-oriented in case a client needs me to help them solve a problem. I can provide three or four options that are healthy. I may not provide the most healthy, but I'm not going to provide the unhealthy, right? I need to be able to provide some solutions to problems because that's part of what I do. So am I the outlier here? No, I'm not the outlier. I'm not the outlier. No, and I, I will I will not concede that I'm the outlier on this situation. Mass shootings are a mental health issue. Every time. Every time. A hundred percent of the time, they are a mental health. Whether that person is deeply sick or not deeply sick, but nobody gathered them up and made them one of us. And that's a problem. And in a divisive world, we are not helping the situation. In other podcasts, you've heard me say this, and this is how I'm going to wrap it up today. You've heard me say politics are a piece of our culture. They are not our culture. We have to regulate behavior through our culture. And culture is what we stand for. And what we stand for, if we're in a, um, I'm in a little town, and in my little town, it's a, a walking and a biking town. If we don't enforce safety around vehicles driving too fast in our town, we will have cars driving really fast through our town, and we will become a town that is not about walking and biking because it would be too dangerous. So what do we do? We say, hey, this is part of who we are. We're a walking town. We're a biking town. Therefore, we're going to enforce these laws that are already on the books to keep it safe. We are going to pay attention to who we are, and we are going to be it. That's called authenticity. So I guess the big question becomes, who are we as a nation when it comes to mental health? Who are we? Are we a nation that uses mental health as a political ploy? I hope not. I hope it never comes to that. Are we a nation who sees mental health as a part of, not the whole, but a part of the solution? I sure hope so. And what part? Early intervention. When somebody is not doing well at the early onsets, that's where mental health fits. And so, yes, mental health is a solution. And it's an early solution. If you've got a brother or a sister or a mother or a father or a a daughter or a son or an aunt or an uncle or a friend who is struggling with anything, that is the person who comes to my office and to the office of any other mental health professional. And we are not all the same. 
We are not all the same. Please shop around. Visit four or five and find one that isn't necessarily going to agree with you, but is willing to listen and provide feedback based on your story, your life, your dreams and aspirations for tomorrow. With that, I'm going to sign off. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.